in preaching for you out of Acts chapter 10. I'll be reading verses 1 through 33, but we'll be focusing on this sermon today, um, stopping at verse 16. Hear now the very word of God. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror, saying, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed at what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to, to send for you and come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he, Peter, invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter 
lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you have sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask Simon, who is called Peter, He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these continual accounts of your wondrous ways, the wonderful building of your church that points to a wonderful Savior. May it be that we would see these wonderful truths and be in awe as we stand before your word. May it be that you would fill us by your spirit to not only understand it, but to believe it, to hope in it, and to act in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Appreciate your enduring and standing for a longer reading of the portion of Scripture. It is important in a narrative many times to get a, a fuller picture. It's sometimes difficult to just do a snapshot. I did decide I'm going to stop um, the sermon only halfway through, though, because I think there's enough in that first couple of paragraphs for us to consider today. I made the title of the sermon based upon the end of that passage when I was once thinking about doing the whole portion. And I thought it was still a good title to keep. When I went to the conference this week, we talked a little bit about how to make titles for sermons. And it wasn't a major conversation part, but we did discuss it amongst our small groups of how it is an indicator of helping people get a focus. And it was a little difficult for me to come up with one today. I had actually thought about a variety of different titles of We are all here is the statement that comes in the last sentence of the passage we just read. I um, also thought about um, a variety of epic times for an epic purpose. And and that sounded um, a little little too much. I also thought about bacon evangelism. And I thought that I might end up getting a lot of people's attention there. But then um, it might actually not go consistently with what the, the passage is talking about today. So as we are all here today to actually listen to what has been commanded by the Lord, uh, may that be the mindset that we have of how the Lord has drawn all of us here together to look at this particular narrative of how he has drawn people from all over the world and different backgrounds to this particular story to proclaim to us the wonder of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to talk about three different things today. One, we're going to talk about the posture, the posture of Cornelius. 
There's a lot of indications of his particular posture and what kind of man he was. And I think it's important as we look at this narrative, I think the writer and God wants us to see this posture that Cornelius has. I also want us to think about the purpose, the overall purpose. There's multiple layers of, there's always a purpose in a narrative, but here getting the purpose right of what is being said here. I am very glad that the Lord has given us this revelation concerning eating food. I love to eat bacon and pork and shrimp and all kinds of foods that were not permitted in the Old Covenant. It's sad to say, though, that is not the primary purpose of this passage. Though often when we think about this passage, that is what we're drawn to and Maybe reasonably so to some degree, but we're going to talk about the purpose. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the person, ultimately, which is the person of Jesus Christ. So first of all, let's look at Cornelius and look at this amazing um, component of who he is. He's, he's from Caesarea, right off the bat. In the first sentence, the first couple of words, we are seeing that he is from a pagan place. This is not just a normal place of Gentiles. He is in a culture and in a place that is known in that time. Caesarea is a pagan, very pagan place. And he is a centurion. He is a commander in the Roman army. He is in the Italian cohort. He is a leader of the Roman army. We don't know for sure exactly where that is. Centurion means usually means a, a commander of 10, but he had a high position now, as you know, that for the Jews and the Jewish Christians, that it, even though they've had interactions even throughout the Gospels with people that are in the military, it, these are not people that are favorable to um, the Christian ways. And, and Christians and Jews particularly are not very fond. So we have this character being built right off the bat. We have this background that we know that he is from a pagan place. He is from an unliked area. He is the one who is a leader, but quickly we are told that he is a devout man. Now, this devout word it can be easily for us to, to adopt. That it means that he's a serious man, that he's a disciplined man and committed man, and all those are the right meanings. But in this particular case, the way that the Greek is indicated here is that he is a devout one before God, that his devotion is a reflection of his devotion to God particularly. Now, surely he likely was a disciplined soldier and, and maybe disciplined in other areas of his life, but what is being communicated to us is to be connected to the next phrase, which, who feared God with all of his household. So this is one who is given over, that his character is committed to the Lord, that he fears and reveres God. Now we see this component of him being a God-fearer expressed again in a few paragraphs. And in Acts, there are a few people who are given this title, God-fearer. And it's, an, it's, a, it's kind of a separate entity when you look at all the different people that are being um, people groups that are in Acts. You have Jews, you have Samaritans and Hellenistic Jews that are those from Greek backgrounds or Greek speaking that are Jews. And then you have the Gentiles who are just all the Gentiles, the people who are from far off. But then there's kind of this other component of people who are called God-fearers. And these were Gentiles 
that were recognized to be God-fearing, but they were not circumcised. They were not Jews. They, were, they had not completely come over into Judaism by being circumcised and by having their diets conform to the Jewish laws. These were those who were known to be those who were devoted before the Lord and had a reputation before God and who would pray and obviously give alms here. They were actively committed to the Lord, but they were not Jews. And so this is a unique guy and an important person for us to look, like, look at. And he was a leader in his household because his whole household feared the Lord. And he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And he has granted this tremendous grace to be given a vision, a very clear vision, it's indicated as, of an angel speaking to him. And it's, a, it's an intense scene. It says that as he clearly, he's not drunk or confused or it's not hazy or it's not just a, 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 a gumption that he has. He clearly sees a vision and the angel of God says to him, Cornelius. And I, I love how it says it here. It says, and he stared at him in terror. Jennifer read this passage to the family this morning and it was kind of funny because she's got her sweet little voice. And, um, and and she's like, Cornelius, and I'm like, no, I don't think that would bring him to terror. This is an intense um, encounter that when he saw this Cornelius, when he saw the angel, and it says he stared at him in terror, and then he says, what is it, Lord? <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, there's probably a, a variety of ways that we can add inflection to that, but I'm sure that it was tremendously intense. He is encountering a messenger of the Lord. Maybe the pre-incarnate Christ, I mean, not the pre-incarnate, the post-incarnate Christ, maybe the Lord himself, but it says an angel of the Lord, and it seems the context is that he's just a messenger, but he is definitely responding to this as being a tremendous encounter. He's been given this blessing, and he's, he's given a reason why he's given this blessing. It says that the angel of the Lord said, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. I wanted us to, to soak on that for a while, to think about the character. And the reason why is because Luke gives us all of these details. He could have given us fewer details. And when they give us things, we want to highlight those things. But this is one who has not been given the full instruction of the gospel. We don't know how he's coming about understanding things. We don't know what makes up his theology. We know he's not circumcised. We also know he's not yet baptized. But for, for some reason, by the testimony of the things that he's heard, and ultimately by the grace of God, this one from a pagan place that's amongst pagan people has been brought to the Lord already to, to a certain degree. He's devoutly before the Lord. The Lord hears his prayers. His prayers in his service, his gracious benevolence, to people are a memorial before God. And we see later how that's even hashed out more, that he, God is remembering his prayers and his activity. He's remembering his devotion. And I think we should be tremendously encouraged by this particular statement, that those who fear the Lord, those who may not yet be far along, yet in their maturity of understanding all the doctrines of God, 
That as God is drawing them to Himself, He is hearing the prayers of His people. He's hearing and seeing their work. He sees it as a memorial before God, and it's also, as we see by his testimony, and this is one reason why I went further with the passage, that everyone in the Jewish nation recognized him and had, were encouraged by him. They, he had a good reputation amongst the Jews. Even though he was a Gentile, he had created a reputation. He was public in his faith. Now, in our good American mindset, we're very individualistic, and we can very much get, you know, I don't care what people think. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And we can even do that with our faith. I'm going to, I'm going to follow the Lord this way, and I don't care what people think. But we can see here, here that it's a memorial, that it is important, not so much what people think, but how we present our faith before the Lord. It's a memorial before the Lord. Yes, we are not to be praying. We are told in the scriptures that we shouldn't be flaunting our prayers out in the open to draw attention to ourselves and glory to ourselves. But it is important that our faith is public because here, this one who is still very immature in his faith is making a memorial before God in such a way that now he is being used as a spectacle for the work of God in the kingdom that is teaching not only the Jews, but also teaching the Gentiles, the church of that day, and teaching us and giving us a proclamation of what kind of God we are dealing with. And not just what kind of God that we're dealing with, but what he is doing in the church then and what he is doing in the church now. So we see this man as a man of a mentor of sense, even for us, if you think about it. He is a good example of a God-fearing man. There's a song that we listen to by the Newsboys, and it's, it says, uh, his Neil is real, Cornelius, you know, his Neil is real, that he has this reputation through commentaries and throughout the church as being one who is faithful. And so we should stop in a moment here and look at his faithfulness and let it be an encouragement to us and look at the components of what those things look like. That both his occupation, his providential placement and role in his work as a centurion had a part in this great spectacle of the Lord. As we look at our particular giftings, we need to understand that even our what may be considered in the world today as secular occupations, that nothing is really truly secular that all of the giftings that we have, all of the occupations that we have, all of the roles that we have are for a purpose of the Lord. And so whatever direction you are in, in your work, and young people, in whatever direction you are considering, let it always be known by example throughout not just this particular narrative, but all narratives, that that belongs to the Lord. And I'm sure that there's probably a time in, Cornelius' life, and he had no connection with what his role was as a centurion and how it would have a tremendous effect on the proclamation of the kingdom. And many of us, when we are studying and preparing, we may not be thinking that way. But God is sovereign over all these things. And how we are with him in our devotion has an impact not just on those who are of faith, but this is to be an impact upon truly the whole world. It is a witness. His particular role as a centurion in a pagan place 
has a tremendous testimony before the Lord. So it's important to see this as we're thinking about this because God is going to use Cornelius to to go and bring about Peter to himself. That's an interesting thing. He's not calling Cornelius to go see Peter, but he's telling Cornelius to appoint those who are under him to bring Peter into his home. And we'll talk more about this in next week's sermon, but that has a significant part in this story because it is showing us that God is going to not just have a Gentile go into the home of a Christian Jew, or Jewish Christian rather, he is going to have one who is of a Jewish place go into the home of a Gentile, into a place that is considered unclean. And for those who are reading this at that time, this would have had tremendous impact on their thinking, that this is not a common thing, that for him to do that is an amazing thing that God would desire Peter to come into his home. That's exactly what God did. And we see a little bit more going on that's inside of that household. And I love these little details, but there are two of his servants and then another devout soldier. Again, when I've read that before in the past, I've always thought that he was a devoted soldier to Cornelius. But this was another one that was like Cornelius, that was one of devotion to the Lord. Again, this Greek word here for this particular purpose is to indicate that this is another one, just as we were told earlier in that paragraph, that there were others in the household who fear the Lord. These are a group of people who are already being drawn to the Lord together corporately under the household of Cornelius, and they have been given the great grace and the great opportunity to be a spectacle by calling Peter to come into the home. Luke stops us and pauses us here for this moment and goes to what's going on with Peter in this situation. This is all setting the stage for us to understand the significance of the next event. Now we're going to where Peter is, and he is in a home. Where is Peter? What, what home is he in? He's in another guy's named Simon, and what is his role? Tanner. What is a Tanner? Is he uh, someone like Trump and he takes tanning pills and, <laughs> you know, makes himself tan? <laughs> Orange, you know, I'm just kidding. Or is he, what, is, what does it mean to be a tanner? Kids may not know this. I'm sure some of you older guys know this, but he, he tans hides. What's that mean? What's going on with the, with the hides? They're preserving it. What's what's what what is he probably making? Leather. Leather, skins, and he's making them from what? Animals, right? Now, we already know that he's a tanner. Every time that this guy is mentioned in the preceding story and in this story, it's not just interesting that his name is Simon, like Peter's name is Simon, but it always says that he's a tanner. And so they're dead things, dead animals around <laughs> in the house. You know, the, I know Evan likes to, 
get around dead animals. <laughs> you, know, and it, you have to touch them, right? You can't really skin an animal. There's, there's not an easy process of skinning an animal without touching them. And I think about you know, Jonathan and Steve and their new work. They're going to be doing a lot of touching of animals. Well, what's the, what's the conflict here? What's, what's the problem here with Peter being around a lot of dead animals? Anybody know? Because they're unclean. We're told in the Old Testament laws that there's, you can't touch dead animals. And we see even in the story of Samson, the, the interesting story of Samson. I was just studying Judges. And it, the reason why it's important to understand what's going on when Samson goes to the lion that he killed and he, and he reaches into the dead animal and pulls out the honeycomb and eats it, the problem there is that he is inevitably touching an unclean animal. And that is going against his Nazarite vow. It's going against the law of God. There is something about this that's very daunting that we have this tanner. We can almost, the fact that it keeps repeating it, we can almost smell animals <laughs> in, in the story. And that's purposeful, that God is wanting us to use the sensory. And for those who understand the Old Testament law, this is getting kind of weird. This is getting to be uncomfortable because... There is Simon, Peter, in a place where he's not really supposed to be. And we have this person who is calling him to come to his house where he's not supposed to be if he's going to adhere to the Old Testament dietary laws and separation laws from not being amongst those who are not considered to be cleaned. But it says that as Peter... and, and, and even though I say that this is not about bacon and our great joy in, in being able to eat bacon, it is about food, but not primarily. Because we have here that Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. So there is this sensory concept again that we have from Luke wanting us to understand that he was hungry. You know, many of you have probably experienced times when you're praying and you're getting hungry and as your mind starts thinking about food and you start thinking about what you want to eat and you're postured in a way where here he is both devoted to the Lord in prayer and also thinking, man, what am I going to eat? I'm sure this happens to you all on Sunday mornings when we are going through the sermon or in worship. You're starting to get hungry and you're thinking about the Lord. Hopefully you're thinking about the Lord and what He's saying in His Word and maybe even during our times of prayer, but you're like, I'm getting hungry. And so in this very natural and real sense, God is drawing us into this story of where Peter is and there's all of this strange things going on that in his context would have not been fully acceptable and then all of a sudden God gives him this vision by presenting forth this sheet, this tablecloth, of all of these animals that are considered to be unclean according to Old Testament law. And Peter, he is told to rise and kill and to eat this food. To receive what had been considered unclean by God himself, and saying to receive it. Let us, let us look at some Old Testament passages here of why this is so 
amazing that God would do such a thing before Peter. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Leviticus chapter 11, and starting with verse 44. I'm not going to read all the dietary laws. You can kind of scan your eyes over Leviticus 11 and and look at the different animals that were considered to be unclean. These are the kind of animals that would have been in this vision before Peter when he told him to eat these things that in Leviticus chapter 11, he is telling his people not to eat. But what I want you to put your eyes on is in verse 44, is why God at that particular epoch of time, that particular posture before his people, why he commanded these things. It says in verse 44, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. When we look at the law of God, there are those laws that are to tell us about the character of God's holiness, but then there are also these ceremonial laws that were given to a particular people for a particular time to make a particular distinction of these people because God wanted them to know and the world to know that he is holy that he is clean, that he is righteous. This was a teaching tool to God's people, but also a proclamation to the world that there are clean and unclean, but ultimately what he is teaching them, there is righteousness and there is unrighteousness. There is good and bad, there is faithfulness, and there is sin. And so for this particular season, for his own purposes, he is using these dietary laws to teach people about holiness, which is also teaching us about sin. And so it's not just a practice of some kind of religious practice with no purpose to it. But this particular, the purpose of these laws are to proclaim his holiness And it's important for us to understand where this is going because for that particular epoch of time, he was using it to talk about unclean and clean for righteous and unrighteous. And he would use people, the Jews and the Gentiles, to make that separation indication to the world. But here, the same purpose is being converted. But now he's teaching us something about not just his holiness, but about his means of cleansing what is unholy. We are now in a place where Jesus' work is done. He is able to clean what is unclean. Ultimately, the lessons here is to teach us that because of sin, we are all ultimately unclean. We see this in Jesus' own words in Mark 7, starting with verse 18. He says, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that what go, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? 
And then in verse 20 it says, And what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From what is within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, evil things, come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus was teaching, and this story is also in Mark, I mean Matthew, in very similar fashion, saying that it's within the heart is what is unclean. Not what you eat that is unclean so much. It's about what is inside of you. What comes out of you is more unclean than what goes inside of you. If anybody was reading along with me, anybody notice anything I skipped there on purpose in that reading in Mark? In verse 19, in parentheses, after it says, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. Now, this wasn't a statement that Jesus made, but Mark here is making a commentary that during this particular teaching about what it is that defiles a man, and it was talking about what was going in and what was coming out and what was in the heart versus what's on the outside, Mark is making a commentary here that by Jesus teaching this in of itself, he has declared all foods clean. How many people of you all have seen that before or have even noticed that before in this particular story in in Mark? Most of us think of Acts chapter 10 as being when everything was unlocked for us to be able to eat bacon. (laughs) But that's when we were able to start having pork. That's when the dietary laws were actually retired. But Mark is indicating to us in some form, in some reason, that when Jesus actually taught that about defilement of the heart, he connected it to the dietary laws and said, therefore, when Jesus taught this, and because of who Jesus is, it nullifies the dietary laws, that Jesus is fulfilling that. Or Jesus' teaching connected to his death and resurrection. I'm not really perfectly sure, but we know with certainty that Mark, in the inspiration of God, that his commentary is certain that he was talking about. Along with it, we know that he's talking primarily about sin in the heart, but there is connection there to the dietary laws and their retirement. And so just as we have here in this story that we know that it's about food, we know that it's about the dietary laws, but we know that we can interpret this passage that what is going on here is that God is telling Peter that Jesus himself is coming back to this particular topic and saying that you need to receive those people who were once considered unclean. And because we know by the teaching of God that he is the one who is cleansing that defilement. He is making what was once considered unclean now clean. And that includes the people, the Gentile people. Now, he's not just giving some kind of universalistic blanket that everyone now is covered under this. That's why we have in these bookends about the life of Cornelius is that he has drawn Cornelius to what? He has drawn Cornelius to faith. He has 
promising that those who are once undefiled, who are once defiled are now those who can be undefiled because of Jesus. And so Peter hears here, and his first reaction is that he's still kind of stuck in thinking about these laws still being enacted. And he says, <clears throat> by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I've not done this practice of eating defilement. And the voice came to him again a second time and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times. The thing was taken up at once to heaven. This was to be a very certain conclusion. He's, Jesus had already been talking about his work and what the purposes of his work is. The Gospels are full of him talking about how everything in the law and prophets are talking about me. And in my particular work is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. And I am the one who is going to cleanse the unclean. Clean. I am the one who is going to make undefiled what was considered to be defiled. And God is trying or teaching Peter that he can now no longer consider the Gentile people because they're Gentile as unclean. The gospel has exploded because of the power of God. Now the epoch of time is that in this particular time in history with the early church, he is now going to use the Jews and the Gentiles being brought together under the redemption of Christ as an epic moment of his salvation of uncleanliness. The great hope of this particular passage is, is that one, we have a holy God, and we see that as we are reminded of the ceremonial Old Testament laws. If we study the Old Testament laws, the point of those things are to teach us that he is holy and that he is righteous and that his character is good. And it should be a reflection to us that we are not good and we are unrighteous. We are those who are defiled. And it's not the, that the Jews were cleaned in of themselves. They would be learning too, even from the teaching of Deuteronomy and all the teaching of the Old Testament, that their hearts need to be circumcised. Their hearts need to be cleansed. And so in this particular story in Acts, God is using this moment as a spectacle, not to just talk about how his gospel now reaches out to other people groups, but he is to, he's magnifying the depths and the fullness of how his work is reaching out to every unclean, sinful thing in the heart of mankind. The primary purpose of this narrative is to explode the depths of the mercy of God. The mercy of God based upon the righteousness of His Son. And so we see the purpose is about the proclamation of the gospel for all people who repent and believe. And that the person that's being focused on here is not so much Cornelius and Peter, but it is ultimately to draw us to the work of Jesus Christ. Because of what not just Jesus said as he was teaching about uncleanliness, it's because of what Jesus did on the cross in resurrection and reign that we are fully now in that place. Jesus' proclamation and that teaching was Somewhat of a foreshadowing because it was based upon what he was going to do. 
that he was going to clean the unclean with his blood. And we see that that is being manifested in faith by this Cornelius. And as he is gathered with those who were from outside now being brought in and proclaiming to Peter in the very last thing I read there in 33, he says, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That should remind us of the Great Commission. That as God explained to us and commanded us to go out into all the nations, they were called to bring them in as disciples and to baptize them and to teach them all that he has commanded. God is drawing about a fulfillment of the Great Commission, not just by reaching out to many nations, but to making them cleansed disciples of Jesus Christ. So as we look at this, we can learn a variety of things. One, as we consider doctrine and as we consider theology, I have friends today, Knox and I work with the guy who proclaims to be a Christian, but he adheres to the dietary laws. There's confusion there. And we are to show grace to the confusion. But just as when Cornelius fell down before Peter, Peter didn't just shrug it off. He's like, get up. (laughs) Rise up. And we know that Cornelius is a devoted man. He's a faithful man. But he was confused for a moment that he thought that this was something that he should do in the presence of Peter. And Peter corrected him, but still walked with him. That's called discipleship. And so it's important for us to understand what's going on in this passage so that we can know that because there are Christians today who believe we should still adhere, even though this has clearly been proclaimed and Jesus' work has been done, there are still people who are confused about the dietary laws, that that is something that is still placed upon us as a command. It is clear that that is not the case. But maybe what is not so clear as we consider this doctrinal distinction is are we thinking a lot about sin in this story? Are we thinking about the depths of how far Jesus' grace goes? And I contend that's not the context that I hear amongst believers and amongst teachers and pastors. That we often think about the doctrinal difference. The highlight here and the purpose of this is for us to understand the work and the person of Jesus Christ in cleansing us of our sins. This should cause us great celebration. Because God's purpose in doing what he did in the first epic by showing this distinction was just to show us how far away we are from God and how defiled we really are and how impossible it is for us to do anything to be in his presence. But go back to the beginning of this story. The angel of God comes to Cornelius and he says, Cornelius. And how does he respond? Because Cornelius has an indication, an understanding of where he is before the Lord. And he's like, what is it, Lord? Do we have that intensity and understanding of just how righteous God is and how holy God is? He spent this portion of the Old Testament to make that very clear. And it is hopeless. It is hopeless for us to be able to do anything to appeal and to appease that righteousness. And then on this side, do we understand on this side of the cross that in Jesus Christ, 
we have a hope that He is right before us and with us because we are now cleansed by His power and His might. The next time you eat a piece of bacon, don't just think about, well, God, He's such a great creator. I mean, you can think about that. He's a great creator. Like, God, He made bacon. That's so wonderful. But think about how wonderful it is that he would eat with us. That it's not that we get to eat what was once considered to be defiled, is that the Holy One now eats with those who were once defiled. What we have here at this table is a continuation of those sensories being played with to draw us into this understanding is that we get to eat with the Lord, but look what had to happen. His body had to be given. His blood had to be spilt. But by his work in resurrection and reign, we are now with him. Praise be to God. Let us pray.